Welcome to the By the Hood podcast. Before we jump into this episode, just wanted to make you aware that on our website, bythehood.com, we have a free webinar on an intro to the stock market. So please go check it out. Just go to bythehood.com and you'll get the free intro to the stock market webinar. Take it easy and enjoy this episode. What's up, people? Welcome to this episode of the Buy the Hood podcast or webcast, because I don't know how you're consuming this content. I'm your host as always. My name is Jimmy. And as we start off every show, that's with gratitude. Just want to say thank you to anyone and everyone who supports anything that we have going on. Special shout out to all the students from Buy the Hood University, as well as the youth from the Buy the Hood ownership camp. I got my partner in Crown Core. Me Core, what's up, good brother? What's really good, man? Every day above ground is a good day, so let's go get it. Yes, sir. And as you know, our platform is designed to highlight brothers and sisters who are doing positive work in the community, building businesses, teaching the youth. It's putting out all sorts of positive energy. This brother that we have right here with us now, um, we actually met him at an event. And shout out to Rachel, because uh, Rachel's amazing, who put together a summit to teach the youth. He was also one of the speakers there with us as well. And um, his session was just amazing. And we talked to him, said, we got to have you on a podcast Talk about the business that you're doing and everything that you got going on. So without further ado, we got our brother Stephen Braithwaite Martin on. Stephen, how are you, good brother? Fine. Stefan. Let me say it right. Stefan. Not yeah. Stephen. Stefan. I make sure I say it right. Like 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 Urkel's nemesis, right? Yeah, like Urkel's nemesis, like Stefan Marbury. Uh, got you. Got you. Got you. Got you. First of all, you know. Yeah, but you know, th- th- those are the guys, St- Starberry and Stefan, right? Yeah, so. With that being said, though, Stefan, um, man, your session was amazing. It was powerful. Um, the way you uh, started telling a story and to bring folks in to understand what it means to actually be a business owner. Um, that was, you know, um, a very powerful lesson. And, and, you know, we're going to get into that. But let's start from the very beginning. Can you tell us about your childhood, where you were born and raised? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, again, my name is Stefan Braithwaite-Martin. Um People know me as the uh, the dapper business coach, uh, and you know, there's there's this, but I also I, you know, I consult businesses, and I also I'm a uh, community builder and uh, a people connector. Um, but to, to answer your question, Jimmy, uh, I so I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. So I, I grew up, uh, born and raised in East Flatbush. Um, lived there for like 17, 18 years. Went to college. Went to uh, St. John's in Queens for a year then transferred to uh, Binghamton University, SUNY Binghamton, uh, out in upstate New York. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been, I've been, I've always been somebody who's been passionate about building community and telling stories, both telling, you know, stories of, of, of the things I've experienced growing up and how I've understood the world, but also, more importantly, helping people tell their story, right? Folks who uh, have, a wealth of knowledge to share who have really impactful ideas. I've always been the type of person to try to weave that into a compelling narrative to help them sort of elevate themselves or to, to share their knowledge with the world. Um, and I've, I've, you know, I've fell in love with storytelling as a kid, fell in love with reading uh, really, really early on. Um, I had a pre-K teacher who I think once I got to first or second grade, um, her daughter was graduating from high school and had, she had all these books. She put them in a milk crate, gave them to my, uh, to me and my mother, and said, mm-hmm. "Here you go." And we're talking, you know, some Beverly Clearly books, like the, uh, um, you know, the, the Junie B. Joneses of the world. We were talking 
uh, boxcar children. We're talking uh, uh, some of the Goosebump books, mm -hmm. um, all sorts of things. And I, I read it all. I consumed it all and just fell in love with telling stories. So, um, you know, after, after uh, elementary school, high school, I graduated. Um, and by that point, I had already started to, like, look at sort of entrepreneurship as something. But I wasn't even thinking about it. I wasn't even thinking about entrepreneurship um, too seriously. It was mm -hmm. sort of a means to not have to ask my parents for money, right? Because I, I, I yeah. What, what kind of student were you coming up? Were you a, were you a good student? Were you um or, or you know I know you like to read, but what kind of student were you? I was I was a little bit of both. Um, so elementary and middle school, I was a fantastic student. Um, you know, elementary school straight A's, gifted class every uh, every year. Middle school, sort of the same. It was A's and B's, but gifted class every year because I was a fantastic test taker. Um, mm -hmm. High schools were changed. So high school, um, I went to a specialized high school. So in New York, there is a, um, a network of specialized high schools that are sort of like the Ivy League of high schools. Okay. And so I went to a school called Brooklyn Tech. So shout out Brooklyn Tech if anybody's watching. Um, and you, you know, you had tests to get in. So it's like, you know, 3,000 students apply. They only take about 1,100 students uh, per year to get in. And uh, 15,000 students apply around the city. And then like only the top, like three or 4,000 get dispersed amongst the schools based on mm -hmm. your choice. So I get into this school and I'm like, you know, it's a bunch of really brilliant kids. Um, and it's, you know, like 65 to 70% Asian. And the rest was, you know, a, a, another like, 18% white and the rest was just mixed between black, Hispanic and, you know, Pacific Islander and stuff like that. And yeah. uh, it was, it was interesting because we didn't really have like that support system until I got, I uh, got later on. But to answer the question more directly in high school, I was not a great student. Okay. Um, I was, you know, somebody who was intelligent, but I was sort of like under motivated. And I think I was pushed in a different way that I wasn't quite ready for at mm -hmm. the time. Um, so I was that person that I just didn't like homework, didn't like it. And, um, <laughs> but like, it was, I didn't not like practicing. I just didn't like being expected to do sort of like monotonous tasks over again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all throughout elementary and middle school, I, I mean, I had done homework, but if I didn't do it, like I knew the subject matter enough that I would be able to deliver at any time. But at this high school, it was so accelerated that, like, after a while, if you didn't, you know, if you didn't put in your little, you know, 1% better every day, it was going to show. Gotcha. Right? But I was somebody who, you know, when, when it was time to deliver and you put, you know, put, put me at the free throw line, two seconds left, I was sinking those free throws. Right? I, was, I was the person that when we had state exams or big projects or essays, yeah, I was delivering because I was somebody who, again, loved to tell stories. And mm -hmm. I understood information in story so i never had to i never had to memorize anything i was always able to you know think of the story around the thing and be like okay great i can write an essay about it i can do a project on it and stuff like that so yeah i wasn't i wasn't great at homework i was a fantastic test taker fantastic presenter um and yeah some teachers loved me some teachers hated me it was sort of a, a give or take but i loved learning for sure so my question is like, so you, you talked a couple of times about your love of storytelling, right? And you mm -hmm. talked about um, your love of reading. Where would you say that de did it develop strictly from your love of reading or was it something else that was ingrained in you younger where, you know, um, in your family, this, uh, you know, do they tell stories a lot? So where'd that love of storytelling come from? Mm -hmm. So I think it's a combination of things, man. Um, 
part of it was, you know, my family did tell stories growing up. So my parents are Guyanese, uh, which is not Ghanaian, Guyanese. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, for those of you watching, that's the South American country right next to Venezuela. Um, but we are, you know, considered Caribbean, the uh, CARICOM, which is like the Caribbean sort of United Nations is housed there. But in Caribbean culture, storytelling is a big key uh, uh, part of how we sort of pass down um, our family legacy, but also experiences and just ways that we teach proverbs, right? Like storytelling is one of the best ways to teach. Um, so I think that was a big part of what sort of drove that. But then I think it was just once I started reading, uh, I just really just gravitated towards like understanding a narrative uh, ever since I was like a really, really young kid. So I was the kid that when you, when I was reading a story time book, I was like, actively sort of interacting or I'd read something and be like, oh, I wonder what's gonna happen next. Or I'll start like making inferences on what was gonna happen next in the story when I was like four and five years old. So I don't know, I just sort of like gravitated towards that and just the way I understood the world. Got you. So now when it comes to business, right? So the marriage of storytelling and business uh, was like, was, was entrepreneurship or business something that was, you know, in your family or where did that come along? So you, you finished high school and mm -hmm. went to St. John's, did you major in business right away or how, how that all work out? I actually never majored in business. Okay, so, what you mean? Yeah, so I majored, I was a, a political science major um, okay. through and through. Um, I, um, yeah, I was political science. And I, was, I was looking to merge politics and the law. Uh, I did all sorts of like pre-law fellowships. I was at law schools. I did all the things. But business was always something in the back of my mind. I wanted to major in business, but I was like, ah, I'm not... I don't think I'm the business guy. I, I, I wanted to be in politics. I wanted to do all these things. And business sort of creeped up on me. And I didn't, again, I wasn't sort of intentionally doing it, but I think I always had the desire to sort of create something of my own mm -hmm. um, and, and deliver something. Cause I felt like I could do that in ways that were unique. And maybe I wasn't gonna make a living off of it, but I, I did love creative projects. Um, to my knowledge, no, nobody in my immediate family was an entrepreneur, right? Um, a lot of Caribbean, uh, a lot of, you know, when you're a first gen, uh, when you're a first gen student or kid, you're taught to do the things that are stable. Mm -hmm. You're taught to get a job, preferably in the government or become a doctor or an attorney or something like that, because you know the money is going to be good. You can set down roots and you can just sort of fly in under the radar so that you can establish yourself for the generations after you to be able to flourish. So um, that was sort of like the, the standard set i think my parents were my parents weren't as stringent on that they sort of trusted sort of my vision and had mm -hmm. an idea that like you know whatever stefan does he's gonna he's gonna be fine he's, he's gonna figure it out so i really do like appreciate sort of that that sort of energy because even when they didn't understand it or even when they couldn't necessarily like support because they didn't know how they were never like you know they were they would they would never actively say well you're disappointing us because you didn't do that Gotcha. Um, they would say, why aren't you pursuing law? Or why aren't you? My mom, um, all the like, women in my family have been in education at some point. So like, well, why aren't you teaching? Like, you could teach. And I, I did teach for a little bit. So, well, why can't you just be a teacher? You'll make good money. You'll be fine. Everything will be good. Uh, so, yeah. But, yeah, I always had sort of the, the, the mindset of making it happen uh, and, and finding a way to create. Got you. So when you transferred colleges, uh, did you continue? So through, through and through, you said you studied political science. Now, um, through your studies of political science, how has that helped you with the current businesses that you have now? So uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I, I 
get that a lot. And a lot of people are always, they think very linearly when it comes to going to college, right? So people say, all right, I go to college, I get a degree, I'm gonna, and if I don't do exactly what my piece of paper says, I have wasted my college degree. And that is unequivocally false and downright, for lack of better words, stupid. And the reason why is that um, as with anything else, whether it's a job, whether it's a degree, whatever you decide to pursue, it's not about the words on the piece of paper or the letters after your name or the words in your job uh, and the words in your job title. It is the skill sets you've learned and the connections you've made. So um, political science and the study of politics, which is essentially studying people and the, um, and the systems they create to sort of govern and, and decide how the world should function, is very akin to understanding how businesses function because you're understanding what makes people tick, why do people operate the way they do, what makes them sort of fight back against certain things, what makes them desire certain things. And you really get to dive into all the factors that govern decisions. Mm. And so it requires a lot of critical thinking. It requires the ability to sort of like, again, dive into the story to understand what's something deeper than the law that was passed or the war that happened or whatever. So it's not just historical events talked about, it's really getting into the, the, the nitty gritty. It's when you're able to do that as a business owner, you're always going to be winning because you get to understand what what influences your customer's behavior, right? What gaps do they have? What are the things that are like their their specific pain points and how can I articulate how I, how I solve or help them down the path to solve those things? So yeah, those skills were directly applicable. And, you know, I think it put me head and shoulders above some of the folks that even were in business because you learned that you learn business sort of in an, uh, in in the abstract, right? You understand how to do financial modeling and things like that, but sometimes you don't learn how to lead people, right? You don't learn how to set a vision. You don't learn what it takes to be able to like get in front of some people and say, "Look, this is where I want to go. This is how we're going to get there." And people be like, "Yeah, that's a great idea." Because um, it's not always about how much money that could be made that's going to inspire those people to do it. So. I, I think that it, that was super helpful for me in my, my experience. And there was a variety of things I did on campus that sort of bolstered that entrepreneurship and business mindset that happened outside of the degree. Um, and we can talk about that when I talk about getting, like how I got my start in my first business. But mm -hmm. yeah, um, I hope that, that answers that. No, it, it absolutely does. And let's talk about that. So your, your first business, let's talk about your first business and how you got that start um, in your first business. Yeah, so um, the way I got my start so I have a first business and then I have like a business zero. So I'll talk about the business zero. Okay. Uh, so my business zero was in high school. And I, um, the first thing I was doing was, again, I'm a high school kid. My parents don't have a ton of money. I'm interacting with folks who do have money now because it's even though it's a public high school, it's an elite high school. So a lot of people who grew up with money are there right wearing designer or always had money to go somewhere or something like that i walk around with five dollars ten dollars maybe for two weeks right so <laughs> yeah. or until my parents get paid again i'm trying to figure out how to get a slice for a dollar 75 how do i do this how do i do that better not lose my metro card because i don't know how i'm gonna get home stuff like that but anyway um my high school was very big but compact right so think you know high schools have campuses right condense mm -hmm. that campus into one large building with up to like 13 floors. And it's like a city block in length and width. 
So we have classes. You can be on the, you know, you might be on the second floor north side, and uh, the your next period class might be on the sixth floor south side. You gotta walk up the stairs, go across, and get there in four minutes. Right? And we have we have lockers in different rooms. So my freshman year, I get a locker, um, and I don't really, I, you know, I, I didn't have a locker in middle school, so I didn't really understand how that worked. So I was mm -hmm. like, all right, I'm gonna pick a locker in one of the classrooms I have. And I'm put my stuff in there during the day. I quickly realized that it was like the worst location, right? The worst piece of real estate I possibly could pick because it was out of the way. I didn't really have a chance to go there and stop and get my stuff or drop my stuff off. So I was still carrying my stuff all around all day long, but I wasn't using this locker. So what I started doing was like, I, I realized that a few of my friends, when we would hang out after school, I'll stop in my locker. They were like, yo, you don't have nothing in here. And I was like, yeah. Or they'd be like, yo, I lost my lock. I lost my da 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 da, and I'm like, okay, well, a lock costs. If you bought it from the school store, it was like eighteen dollars, mm -hmm. right? Or you could buy a little padlock situation, or you know, my dad, my dad was uh, really handy, so he had a padlock with a key, so I didn't pay for my lock. And I was like, look, I'll tell you what, I'll let you guys keep your stuff in my locker. Just meet me after school. I'll get it for twenty five cents a day. That way you don't have to tell your parents that you lost your lock and look irresponsible or get in trouble. Um, you don't have to actually like go through like choosing a place or whatever. If this is convenient for you, just give me 25 cents a day, we'd be fine. So at the end of the week, you know, I rented it out for, you know, I had two or three or five people doing it. And over the course of time, I had actually two lockers that I rented out. It's getting 25 cents a week, a day from like seven people. I had enough money to buy Chinese food every Friday. Right, I had enough money to be able to do what I wanted to do, kind of, with a couple of dollars. Now, it might have been all in quarters, but I had it. So I was at the pizza store lit with, like, 46 quarters. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that was that was, that was was business zero. I also had really neat penmanship because my mom was an educator. So um, another thing that I realized was that folks who were cutting class, like, they would, they would hey, ah, man, I don't have a parent. No, I don't know what I'm going to do, da, da, da. And so one day somebody just asked me on a whim, like, yo, can you write one for me? And I was like, I guess. And so I wrote one and did a little scribble something. And the teacher looked at it and took it because it looked like his mom's handwriting. And that was my little side hustle situation. Ooh. So I always had, I was cool with all the cutters because I could write, I could write like everybody's mom. Uh, and <laughs> that, was, that was business zero. Um, but to talk about my, my, my first business, so my first business in, uh, my business I, I operate in day to day is rhetoric advising, and that is a um, sales and marketing consulting consulting firm uh, where I really and, and my team really helps businesses, particularly those are diverse backgrounds, particularly particularly black folks. But mm -hmm. we're working with emerging businesses that are trying to level up their sales. So we build out sales strategies, go to market strategies for these uh, for these businesses to be able to actually deliver on the things that they're great at. So for example, if you are in the restaurant industry or you're a really great chef, how do you go from selling platters to being a bona fide catering company, right? So there's some business management stuff so we can, we can file entities and help you sort of navigate that. But then also like, let's build out your sales plan. What are your offerings going to be? What is your target market? How do you actually reach your audience? How do you build a brand around what you do so you're not another person that sells platters on the weekends. So that's the primary, uh, the primary thing that we do at Rhetoric Advising. And the way I got my start there was actually more or less out of necessity, I'll be honest with you. So I got my first start out of, 
at consulting when I was an undergrad. So I, um, I had a fellowship at what was called the Public Speaking Skills Lab. Um, and essentially I was a public speaking consultant. So like, you know, I did all these interviews, did this thing, and then the school basically hired me as an intern to help students, professors, and um, people in the local area work on their presentation and speaking skills. So I worked with people working on their dissertation. So, um, you know, adjunct professors or professors who were about to fly out overseas and present, or people who were like trying to get their PhD that semester and were like pre preparing their defense, or people who were just trying to finish their school project and wanted to be able to do it. I also was able to work with folks who were pitching businesses. And so that was where I got my first start at like really understanding what sort of compelled a person to want to invest or want to believe in the business, want to buy something from you. And so I really went down a rabbit hole with those folks of like building a PowerPoint and finding the things that really made people sort of like say yes, whatever yes was for you. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to 2016, um, I leave a job, I'm broke, just moved to Philadelphia, and I'm not able to find a role that really fits what I what my skill sets were. Okay. So naturally, I started hustling, and I'm like, all right, well, um, I got this poli-sci degree. I understand politics and history really well. I can write really well. I'm going to start tutoring. So I started taking these odds and ends tutoring jobs. And, you know, I, one day I'm in Ardmore. The next day I'm in wherever. I'm in, I'm in uh, Juniata, and I'm just with everybody, right? Wherever I'm at, I'm just like trying to teach and coach. Mm -hmm. uh, one day I work with a, a guy who's working on his MBA, uh, mid-level sort of mid-level uh, manager at a, at, a, at a company, making good money, house, kids, all that. And he's like, look, I've got this capstone project that I need to deliver in order for me to get my MBA, but I'm struggling with this presentation. I get it and I'm like, whoo, okay, yeah, you're struggling. Let me, let's, <laughs> let's work and make this happen, right? So I, I take on the, the slide deck and I sort of like develop an entire strategy around how he would pitch this thing. And it was like, I'm pretty sure if I remember, it was like a project where he was unveiling like a, a Urban Outfitters flagship in like England or something like that. And like why that would, you know, how they should approach it and why it would be important. So over the course of a week, we built it out. He gets an A on the project. He's really excited because he's like, look, I was way too busy to deliver this. I ain't gonna lie to you. Thank you for helping me sort of like understand it and make it yeah. happen, right? So he's like, look, man, you're sharp. I gotta introduce you to some folks. I say bet. Okay, cool. So he invites me to this networking event in Radnor, PA. And again, I'm broke. I got like maybe two suits. One of them got a hole in it. So I really got one suit. And he was like, yo, come out and meet these folks, right? I am at that time 20, I might've been 22. Okay. So at that moment, I'm like, shoot, okay, this guy's invited me to this event. I can't just go as myself. Like I gotta go with something. So I didn't, I didn't have Wi-Fi in my house yet. Right. Cause I just moved in. I just moved into my, uh, my brother's, like my brother had a rental and I like moved in and I didn't set up the Wi-Fi yet. Cause I didn't have no money like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm at Starbucks at like 5am and I was like, just do Starbucks all day long. I could actually give you, I still have like a diagram of like all my favorite Starbucks in Philly, um, ranked by hours, quality of Wi-Fi, and who I was cool with, and who was gonna give me free food or a free drink. So, uh, so yeah, shout out to the University of City Starbucks right across the street from uh, from Penn because they really held it down. They used to be open till like twelve, and they held That's it down. Me. Yeah, got gotcha. um, you. 
but yeah, so at this point I'm I'm in Upper Darby and I'm at the Starbucks and I'm like, all right, well I gotta I gotta make a business card. So I come up with a logo, I print it on like the cheapest, the cheapest uh quality business card ever. Like it was in your pocket too long, it would start to like get soggy, it was weird. And um <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'm gonna call it rhetoric advisor. I was like, it's gonna be a communications consulting company. I'm gonna teach people how to write, speak, and and uh yeah, write, speak, and market themselves better. And I'm just gonna figure it out. I made a logo that day, did a whole thing, and went to FedEx, overdrafted my account to print the cards, and then drove to Radnor. I get to the event, my guy's not there. Oof. Not only is he not there, he's not answering my calls. I'm like, yo, am I on the guest list? No, you're not. And I'm late. So they're doing a tour of the event space because it was like a country club situation in Radnor. And so I'm late. So that's my icebreaker, right? So everybody's like, yo, who's this kid? And like, uh, I was wearing a blue suit, pink shirt, blue tie, pink pocket square. I, I, had, I had the whole thing going. And they're like, who's this kid? So I start talking to everybody. I'm like, yeah, you know, hi, what's up? I'm Stefan. I do this, da da da. And they're like, oh, that's kind of cool, man. All right, yeah. Yo, my company could really use that. I, I thought about it. I'm gonna give you a chance or whatever, right? And so I'm in a room full of people who are like 35, 40, 50, 60 years in the game, have successful businesses, or like are you know VP of this or vice or director of that. And that was sort of my first foray into entrepreneurship. Okay. Because then now I'm like, all right, I own this consulting firm. At that point, it was really just me. And I don't know what I was consulting on. I had like six things I was doing. <laughs> um, I did, did this whole like marketing plan and I was trying to be everything. I was trying to, um, I was trying to help students write their uh, college admissions paper. I used to tutor mm -hmm. that. I was trying to help companies sort of like do their comms and strategy. I was trying to do everything. And eventually uh, I, I found a mentor who was doing actually what I wanted to do and had the, the vision for it and had been doing it for a long time and basically retired and sort of consulted for fun. And I think that was the moment where I was like, all right, let me get clear on what my offer is. Let me get clear on how I approach this. Cause I know I knew how to do it really well. I had been doing it for way too, way too little money. And mm -hmm. you know, over the course of time, it was a trial and error, I was able to build out what I have now where I'm able to help people scale. I'm helping people launch. I'm actually going to a, a launch event for one of my nonprofit clients uh, this weekend in Philly. And, mm -hmm. you know, just like being able to think about where I was literally six years ago, yesterday was the six year anniversary of me uh, putting out the post uh, that I started a business. I started August 14th, 2016, but September 12th was when I was like, Hey, everybody, I have a thing. And so uh, that just popped up on Facebook. So it's actually crazy timing, but yeah, I, it's, it's been a, it's been a blessing. Um, so let me, ask, let me ask you this question, right? Mm -hmm. So I've seen on social media, like the, the businesses that you help and, and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, what is one of the uh, the biggest issues that you come across or misconceptions that entrepreneurs have when you walk in to start helping them? Like, mm -hmm. what do you, if you can give us an idea, just like, you know, um, something that you see that's a common thread amongst those entrepreneurs, where it's like, this is something I immediately have to help them with. So I think there's three things. I think one is it's really hard to go out and do something when you don't have a target to shoot at. And it's hard to find the balance of, yeah, I'm planning this out and I'm doing this with intention, but like you will not have all the answers to everything. And sort of fixating on like all the small details actually stops you from growing. So that's one of the number one things is that like, when I come in to help somebody with something, then it becomes, oh, well, I need help with this. And I don't know what this, and like, they sort of have like, you know, 
it's hard to really give themselves to anything because they're spreading themselves so thin, trying to solve every single problem, trying to reach every single customer, trying to be everything to everybody. And if you're trying to be everything to everybody, you're going to be nobody to a lot of people. Mm. So um, that's, I think, one of the number one problems. I think the second thing is sort of just access to resources and sort of like the the ability to sort of digest all that information at once because there's a lot of resources out there but the thing about there being a lot of resources is that the quality goes down right there's so much information on social media there's so many books that you can read there's so many things you can find just by googling that it becomes difficult to parse through it and say this is this is what i'm going to use this is what i'm not so a big deal a, a big sort of obstacle for a lot of entrepreneurs is that they're using a piece of everybody's strategy and never actually seeing anything fully through because they start for a little bit and it doesn't work so they take on somebody else's thing and they do that for a little bit and then they don't get the success and they take on somebody else's thing so more so than funding more so than any of the other things it's like people trying to do a little bit of too like either setting the target super broad or trying to be successful right away and taking every single person's advice or the opposite taking nobody's advice without knowing what they're doing um because money's not going to fix that yeah um and and that that's sort of the biggest hurdle uh for those business owners got you good stuff right there man good stuff um let me ask you this question uh core, i know you had a couple questions but before i get to the core um along this journey from where you started um you know way back when in, in brooklyn so where you are today what would you say is uh, your biggest hurdle or hurdle that you had to overcome to get you to where you are today in, in terms of running your business? So I think the biggest hurdle uh, when I started was youth. Um, and I, I'll, I'll explain it like this. So once upon a time, I get invited to a networking event. Well, no, actually, I did not get invited to a networking event because I didn't know anybody. I found this on Eventbrite. And I, I show up to the networking event, I pitch my business, and the organizers of the event, uh, the organizers of the event, pull me into their office and say, "Look, we we need to talk to you." So I'm like, "Oh shoot, I'm doing this right." They sit down and like, "Look, we got this XYZ company. Um, we really think that you would be able to help us, uh, and and you know, we want to talk a little bit about how we could do so." So part of it was you. Some part of it was a, a, a teensy bit of immaturity, but it sort of came up over and over again as I worked with business owners. Was we chat for a while and then somebody asked, oh, do you have kids? And I was like, oh, no, no. And I, I said it like, yeah, nah, mm, not right now. Like, I ain't trying to do that. That's not that's not for me. And so they say, hmm, okay, well, how old are you? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm 22. And they're like, wow. Okay, 22, wow. He's a, and they're like mouthing, oh, he's a kid. Like, what? Yeah. What are you going to teach me about business if I've been alive longer than you? And so that was one of the things that sort of, that was one of the obstacles when I came up was I've always been the sort of person I am. I've always been the youngest person doing whatever, right? I'm How usually young. Say that again. How did you combat that? So I think the, so the first thing I did was I stopped being insecure about it. Cause like I used to like dread going into strategy meetings or pitch meetings uh, because I was like, oh man, this age thing is going to come out. I was like, all right, should I cut my hair different? Should I do something different with my beard? Like, what should I do to like 
to deliver this. Cause it wasn't like the way I dressed, cause I dressed like this all the time, right? And so what eventually I started doing was focusing on the value that I was able to drive for these businesses. And that was a constant independent of how old I was or how many years I spent doing the exact same thing you did, because here you are sitting in front of me. And that's not arrogance, that's not being cocky, it's just the reality of the situation, mm -hmm. right? We've had a number of conversations and the things that I've talked about and the way that I approach building businesses and how seriously I, I'm committed to this usurps how old I am, how, you know, or, or whatever else is out there. And if that was if that was the only driver of whether or not I was good at my job, we would not be sitting here. So when I put it like that, of like, do you want to feel good about also, do you want to feel good about who is consulting or do you want actionable results? That's when people started to be like, now nah, you got it. What's yeah. your price? You focused on and, adding value. Exactly. And so I've recently uh, around the, the concept of value, I've recently sort of developed a different philosophy about it. So okay. a lot of us, we, we talk a lot about like adding value, deliver, creating value, things like that. And I've been thinking about it and I'm like, well, much like sort of the theory of relativity, right? Where like energy is neither created nor destroyed, right? It just is and mm -hmm. it flows, right? Value is not created nor destroyed. It's just, it's, it's just portioned differently, right? So there's a lot of people who stockpile the value, right? The resources, the education, the knowledge, that all exists. And a lot of people hoard it or it's just, it's just arranged the wrong way. So new business owners, uh, people of color, uh, people in impoverished communities or conditions don't get access to that value, right? It's not that it doesn't exist. It just doesn't, it's not there for them. Mm -hmm. So I've sort of charged myself with being a, a conduit, right? Where value flows through me. So I don't think I, I create anything. I find innovative ways to deliver it and get it to the people that need it. But yeah, I, I sort of think of value a little bit differently, I think over the course of, of, of my experience. I'm gonna write that down. Value flows through me. That's like an affirmation right there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I mean, yeah, nah, man. I, 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 I say that. I, I truly believe that, right? It's that everything that I do is to ensure that somebody else is getting something, mm -hmm. right? I don't do these things to enrich myself. Riches will come, and I will enjoy those. But <laughs> in that, uh, but should. in that. It's like I, I will do that by helping somebody else do as much as they can. And that's sort of my mantra is helping as many people as I can do as much as they can. Um, and that's sort of how I've always operated um, since I was a kid. Okay. All right. So, Corey, you had a question, good brother? Man, I got a, a few questions. Uh, first <laughs> question, Stefan, um, coming up in Brooklyn and then moving, you know, to Philadelphia, what was the uh, impetus from moving your business and your and, and the things that you were doing from where you came from to where you are now? So, I mean, Philly was always sort of a second home to me. So my older brother went to Temple um, and yeah. he's like over a decade older than me. So when I was coming up as a kid, I'm talking like, you know, early elementary school, he was already like in college. Right. So he was doing the dorm thing and then he moved off campus. So he stayed on Diamond Street in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And so I was there with my mom and like we were taking, we was taking the train to SEPTA, uh, to, to New Jersey Transit to SEPTA, we were, going, we were going the long way. 
and getting there and meeting him, right? Then when he graduated, he moved to Ben Salem. And then when he moved from Ben Salem, he moved to, you know, outside uh, in Delaware County. And so I always spent the summers there, you know, with him and sort of just soaking in all the things he was doing in his life, but also soaking in Philly when I could. So Philly was sort of just a logical progression for me because I myself wanted to go to Temple. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's actually funny, my, so the way my name appears, right, Braithwaite Martin, is the reason why I didn't get into Temple. Because uh, when I was in school, I was enrolled at Stefan Martin. So in my mind, when I started doing these college apps, I wrote Stefan Martin. But I didn't know, I didn't realize when you were doing college apps, it was going off of your social. So if your social, the way your name appears with your social, doesn't appear the same way that you have there. That's, those are two different applications. And mm. so um, I ended up having to apply to every school twice. And by the time they were able to correct the issue, they had already done all their rolling emissions. So I uh, broke my heart, quick temple story. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I, Philly was just like the logical progression for me. And I had a lot of love for Philly. And um, yeah, that's sort of what inspired it. I think Philly has a, a unique hustle to it, right? Um, New York is very much, even though New York is as a whole very white collar, uh, Brooklyn has a hustler's mentality. It always has. And I, I feel like Philly has that very same mentality, sort of that grit and grind mentality. And Philly has a little bit of underdog in it, and I, I like it. Um, so that was what made it happen. So much so that I started, uh, I joined an, another founder, my partner, on a whole sort of, um, and we could talk about this later, a BIPOC retention and attraction uh, social impact company that's going to be geared to helping people of color um, live, work, and play in Philly, get paid, do all the things that they need to do to, to thrive in this Philly ecosystem and not feel like they need to leave and go to D.C. where I'm at now or going to L.A. or New York and stuff like that. So I always love Philly. Okay. Nice. And the second question I have is, um, through your educational experiences, um, how did you, uh, I don't know how to say this, like uh, make make your uh, your parents understand that, you know, I'm not being a doctor. I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to be a politician. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I know a lot of people who are first generation or second generation United States citizens. And I know their parents are like absolutely chaotic when it comes to the kind of jobs that they want their kids to have. Um, Me and myself, me, myself and Jim, we went to a school that was similar to the one that you went to. Um, so when you were describing that experience, that's why me and Jim was laughing. We was like, oh, we had that experience. <laughs> um, um, so how did you explain to your parents that, you know, I went to this great school, but I ain't do, I'm not doing anything, you know, as far right. as that is concerned um, with the degrees and the, and the education that I had? So I think that what helped was I was the type of person that, like, if I set out a vision, if I said, look, this is what I want, nine out of 10, I was walking away with the thing I wanted. And I think over the course of time, when I was able to demonstrate that, like I would be like, hey, I want to win that competition. And my parents would be like, oh yeah, that's cool. You know, do your best, blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, 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 I, you heard what I said, right? I want to win that competition. And I'd go win that. I would go get that award. I would go, you know, do that thing. And so, when I think by the time, and it also helped that I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a lawyer when I was, since I was a kid. So and that helped. I kind of got away with it for a while because that's what they thought it was going to be. But I think by the time I had like sort of deviated from that, and I was like, look, I think I want to do this thing. 
I already had so many things where I was like, look, I said I wanted that and I did it, right? I was the type of person that like I knew when I got to, I, I knew I wanted to live on campus, right? Cause I was like, my apartment is small. I was like, where I lived in Brooklyn, like this wasn't conducive to what I needed, right? I knew I needed to grow beyond where I was at. So I was like, I don't care what I gotta do, I'm gonna live on campus somewhere. And I did that, right? And then it was, all right, well, you know, I wanna, I wanna explore sort of the world around me. So I didn't get a chance to study abroad cause my parents didn't have it like that. But I did get a chance to do an internship somewhere different every year. So I sort of became known as a family member that was like never home cause I was in Oklahoma or I was in St. Louis or I was in Boston for a month doing fellowships or whatever. And I was like, look, mom, I'm, I'm telling you, this is what I want, right? Or I want that job. I want to be able to have money. I want to not have to ask you for it or whatever it was. And I think after a while of sort of like demonstrating that it became, this is a decision I'm making. And while you may not like it or while you might disagree, I respect that, but you disagree. And that's all that is, right? And you know, sort of just moving in that. And so even if, and thankfully my, you know, my mom, again, even if she disagrees, she's still supportive. My parents are still supportive. For me, even if they weren't, I was still gonna do what I was doing. That was it. That was just, there was no way around it because I felt like I was, there was something placed in me to operate this way. And while I love my parents and respect them, this was a non-negotiable for me. Um, so yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of how it was. It was like, I was okay with being the villain and you will be the villain sometimes when there's people that want something for you, but they, they're not you. Right. So it's like, this might disappoint you. This might not be what you expected or whatever it is, but this is what I'm going to do. And even if I make the mistake, even this ends up not working out, that was my decision. Right. And I'm going to own that. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to be mad at you for trying to stop. Uh, I'm not going to be mad at you for not stopping me because I told you not to stop me. So yeah. yeah, your villain story didn't turn out to be uh, <laughs> the Joker, and you turned out to be, you know, a community pillar instead of a, a community a community pillager. Well, I mean, <laughs> your, villain, your villain story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had another question, Court. Let's you, you done, Court? You have something else no, you want to I'm say? Done, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, I had a question um, that I want to ask you in terms of books. You talked about your love of books. Mm -hmm. So, what would you say is your favorite book, or a couple books, or a book? Mm -hmm. that has inspired you along this journey oh so many so many um i will i will go with um notes of a native son by james baldwin so that's a collection of essays and one thing i love about james or as i call him uncle baldwin is when i read his book so the first time i picked up a, a james baldwin book was high school mm -hmm. okay and i didn't understand half of what he was saying. And I was somebody who like, I knew a lot of words, I knew a lot of things, yeah. but Baldwin, he be, I don't know, man. He be on a, he be on, he be on a different time. Yeah, yeah, but to he, me, to me, Baldwin a, is the single greatest writer ever. That's my personal opinion. I, I just in terms of just in terms of like talent, like I don't, I read, I don't I read, disagree with you. Yeah, I, I read his writing and I feel like I should never write again. Like, what am I doing? What am I writing with the pen, bro? Yeah, nasty. his pen game is crazy. And so, as somebody who like I you know loved literature, loved words, I was like, oh, okay, cool, he nasty with this, but I don't know. I was like, okay, I'm like 13, 14, 15, and I'm reading like Go Tell It on the Mountain, and I'm like, dog, I'm on page three and I'm tired. <laughs> how sway so i'm like all right well let me let me get into it so by the time i was able to really uh engage with baldwin at the level that i needed to engage with um 
I saw so much of myself in sort of his like coming of age. Mm-hmm. I saw so much of myself in like being in a country or even when he traveled to Europe or when he was in France and Paris and stuff like that of realizing I am black wherever I go. Yep. And there is no escaping that, nor should I try to escape it, right? And because of this, and because of the things I've been gifted with, I will continue to fight to A, claim and sort of embrace my blackness in the face of the people who don't love me or actively hate me. And also, even though I reside in a country that does not love me, I love it because of the opportunity it presents. And because I love it, I will continuously critique it and fight against the things because I can't I can't be in something where it's a mess and just let it be a mess. And so when I sort of got that, I was like, yeah, no, I know what I need to do with this, right? I know there was things that God blessed me with to be able to do. And I was like, I can't sit in mess and just be like, well, this is mess, right? And that's not a knock against people who like, you know, aren't able to or don't have the will to do that. But for me, like, I know I was called to do more than that. So when I, when I, if I'm, if I'm in that or I see an opportunity or there's, there's something that can be done, I got to do it. Or I got to yeah. find the person who does do it because we can't, yeah. I can't see it and just let it go by. So, uh, yeah, Notes of a Native Son really sort of helped me sort of contextualize the world. Uh, I used to be a, well, still am, um, you know, sort of aged out of it, a Walter Dean Myers fan. Okay. So uh, a lot of those books, so Slam, Monster, all those books were, were, were super fire for me as a kid. Um, a book that I've read recently um, that's not like literature, it's just like a, a, mm-hmm. a book that I think is really helpful for any, especially any entrepreneur or anybody who has to sell, is a book called Stories That Stick. And, um, oh man, I'm forgetting the name of the author off the top of my head, but I you will- said, uh, Stories That Stick? Stories That Stick. I got that book. I didn't read, let me see, did I read that one? Kendra Hall. Kendra Hall, yeah, Kendra Hall. So she is, so first of all, she's super dope. So like, she is like, I love storytelling. She loves storytelling on steroids. So, so much so that she's like, she like studied storytelling, right? That's that's been her her whole thing, developed a whole framework around it. And really the book is about understanding how to, you know, how to market yourself through the lens of storytelling. Because when we think about marketing, we think about like, okay, well, I gotta have, I have to have a shtick, right? I have to have a gimmick. I have to, you know, I have to be gossipy or I have to, you know, take advantage of every single uh, current event and turn that into a spiel. Or I gotta make a viral pulse and then attach my thing to it. And it's not that at all, right? The best storytellers, the best businesses, the ones that succeed the most, even if you're not in business and you're just like a person that wants to win over people, you're a leader of some sort, whether it's in the community, at your job, um, you know, wherever you're at, right? Mm-hmm. being able to tell a compelling story, a reason why people should believe in it or you or that starts with understanding, again, yourself, but also understanding like how people sort of contextualize the world. How do they derive importance and meaning out of things? But she tells it in such a really interesting and like approachable way that you fly through the book, right? It's not one of those books where it's like, it's super technical or anything like that. She's teaching it to the person who's like, look, I'm just trying to do a job. I got whatever. You got like, you know, 20 minutes a day for a week. So you could fly through that book and it's super, super helpful. And I found myself reading it and being like, damn, yeah, exactly. That's what I've been doing. I didn't even know it was called that. So <laughs> let me ask you this question, right? This last question I got. So, well, next to last question. 
Mm -hmm. Um, as someone who's into to marketing and building businesses and storytelling, um, when you look at the landscape of the big businesses, who do you think gets it right? That's a good question. Um, that is a very, very good question. Um, in terms of like super big businesses. Yeah. I mean, it it could be something that you, you know, that, that you say, okay, they get it. They, they, they're brands that people would recognize. Yeah. So I think. For starters, I think that Google and Apple get it very, very right. Okay. And while I despise Apple, um, because they make an inferior product, the oh, you about to start, start Corey on a tangent. I'm sure uh, the the storytelling and brand marketing behind it is fantastic. It is fuego, and that is why we buy, right? Yeah. So it's not so much that this phone is fantastic; they just know the features that people care about and how to tell a story around those features. So if I, if I build a camera that's marginally better than the camera I made last year, but I tell a new story about all the things I can do, the moments I can capture, the feelings and emotions that come with it, the ability to look back five years from now when you pick up an old phone and be like, oh, wow, I really did do that. Or wow, that was a great time. If I can tell that story, I will sell phones all day. It does not matter what else comes with the phone, I can sell it. No, right? I agree so, with you. I agree with you. They're second to none. I, I just watched their most recent event, and for the first thirty minutes, they didn't even talk about a phone. They talked about saving lives yep. and the importance of saving lives. And I'm like, at the end of, I'm like, well, who doesn't want to save lives? Like, we gotta exactly. save these. We gotta save these lives, right? Exactly. We gotta save these lives, man. Like, give me the phone. I gotta save these lives. Right. But no, so, so you're yeah. absolutely right with that. But um, yeah, so, from Google, so from the Google perspective, mm-hmm. what, what did you say is like, what do, what do they get right? So what Google gets right and what a lot of companies I think are going to change, and this is something that I'm doing with uh, my my social impact company, The Connect, is it's marketing through the lens of the business, the sub businesses that they create. Right. So all these all Google's initiatives, the research initiatives, all of those things are all entities that Alphabet, Google's parent company owns. Right. Or Google owns those specific companies. So I think of, and and Facebook does this well too, of, okay, well, we have a Google impact lab and we have a Google uh, sort of like a psychology lab and all these other things. And they'll hire these people to come do this research. And when they deliver those things and say, look, we care, we care a lot about, you know, this element of human behavior, or we care a lot about like what makes people drive decisions or even things like Google trends of like, Hey, we want to help you find, uh, we want to help you understand like where this term came from and what, how often do people search those things, right? All the, all the sub brands that they build under it, subconsciously, you start to think of Google as like, yo, if I want to think about something or if I want to find something, it is Google, right? There's a reason why Google is a verb. And yeah. so it's not just that like, Google just had all the money in the world and they're just like ubiquitous. It was that they found ways in the other companies and projects that they worked on to really sort of position themselves through marketing of if you want to search for something, you Google that. Yeah. Right. If you want to know, if you want to learn more, you're going to Google it. Facebook and Meta um, builds an entire identity around if you want to connect or find a new way to meet somebody or interact with somebody on a virtual platform. You're on Facebook, you're on Instagram, you're on Meta. Now, you know, these other competitors are there, but Facebook had that market cornered for a minute. Yeah. Right? 
So those are the ways that they're able to sort of like take over the world subtly, right? Because it's not called Facebook this, it's called something else, right? It's not yeah. called Google this, it's called something else. And they get the research and they get all these things done. But the consumer, you're just like, damn, that's Google too? And you, you start interacting with all of those things. So um, yeah, that's what I'm trying to build with my, with, with, with uh, this, this other company here and Philadelphia and, and beyond. Okay, so let's talk about that. That was my yep. last question I had for you is what does the future look like for you? You told us your story of how you came up to where you are now. Mm -hmm. What's the future look like for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's cliche, but I feel like the future is bright. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is because there are just so many things that, you know, myself and, and the people around me are working on that are built towards the future. And again, we're not trying to extract value we're trying to facilitate value right so um one of those initiatives is called the connect.pro uh, or the connect phl and what it is, is it started as a networking organization it's just connecting black and brown folks um in the city of philadelphia to be able to live work and play in philly right so we were trying to uh get people out of their silos so if you're an attorney you only you tend to only have attorney friends right because you work all the time mm -hmm. how does the attorney meet the neurosurgeon how does the neurosurgeon meet the educator? How does the educator meet the, the plumber, whatever, or the real estate agent? And mm -hmm. how can we connect in a way and network in a way that's not just, hey, who are you and what do you do? Can we talk about sports? Can we talk about our favorite places to eat? Can we just have a good time and, and sort of like meet like family in a, in a controlled space? That's not, you know, no-no or something. So um, when, we, when we started there, we started to realize that Philly has a problem retaining folks like that, mm -hmm. right? Upwardly mobile, you know, sort of big picture thinkers. What happens is, you know, you let's say you went to school, you went to school in Philadelphia, right? You went to Temple, you went to Penn, you went to Drexel, you went to St. Uh, St. Joe's, wherever. You come out, you're working in Philly, you grind and you try and get your thing. About five, six years down the road, you hit a, you hit a glass ceiling, right? You meet all the people you feel like you're going to meet. It's hard to find people who you're like, all right, we're big picture thinkers. We're building businesses. We're doing all those things because everybody else is sort of like clicked up a little bit because that's just yeah. who they know. And then professionally speaking, all of a sudden the like VP title jobs or the mid-level management jobs sort of dry up. And you're like, well, why? And the answer is it's not that it, dry, it dried up like the jobs are not available. They're just not available for you. And so they find themselves feeling like, all right, well, I have to get out into a bigger marketplace, right? I gotta go to New York. I gotta go to DC. I gotta go to Atlanta. If I hear another Philly person move to Atlanta, I'm gonna scream. <laughs> um, I, gotta go to, I gotta go to LA to be able to find these things, find that ecosystem, find the people around it. And so for myself, I lived in Philly for, uh, or the Philadelphia area for five, six years. And I was like, I really believe in this place. Mm -hmm. My partner, born and raised in Philly, really believes in this place. How do we make this, how do we make this better? And so what we decided was, all right, well, look, we are going to be part network. So like to the everyday person, we're a network organization that also actively drives and delivers value, right? So every week we have um, a, a weekly talk called Put Us On. And Put Us On is just like somebody else who's an expert in their field is putting us on game on like, hey, how do you navigate this as a professional, as a person? So we just had like an accountant on there talking about tax code. We've had people talk about leadership. We had people talking about sort of just entrepreneurship, but from like the mindset space. So just really yeah. dope conversations around like the things that matter to us every day. 
Um, we have networking events where that, again, it feels like you feel like your family. You don't feel like, oh, I'm, I'm meeting this person to shake hands and try to connect on some things and try to make some money. That can happen, but that's not the core focus, right? So the, that familial sort of like, I belong here starts to happen, right? Then on the other side, we're working on um, hiring and DEI strategy, right? So diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy for both um, like private and public companies and the city of Philadelphia itself, right? So how can we make this a citywide initiative to be like, look, we're missing the mark with our black and brown folks. We want mm -hmm. all this talent to come here, but then when they come here, we don't cultivate that talent. And so mm -hmm. we've realized, we've built a team around this, like we build community better than a lot of people. So let's show you how to do it. And let's make this not something that's a, uh, we don't want this to be uh, uh, like a nice to have for the city. And we're not trying to pitch anybody on like, oh my gosh, it'd be so great if the black people felt like, or the black and brown people felt like they belonged. Da, da, da. It's like, no, this is an economic must for any city. So we built an entire framework around like, what makes people stay and how can we do that and sort of create a more, uh, a more economically viable future for Philadelphia and for these other cities? How do we do this and enrich these companies and help them really deliver on the things that they're saying? They have all this diversity inclusion money that they're putting out there, but it's mm -hmm. not reaching the right people because they're not putting the right people in place. We can do that for you and do the thinking. You can't find black and brown folks. That's crazy. We got a couple of hundred of them right here. Yeah, you often hear that. You often hear that. You often hear that. Like, yeah, I'm looking for them, but I can't find any qualified folks. Right. Okay, cool. That ain't no problem. We can we we can bring way it right here. Bluff, very, way to call they bluff. <laughs> right. So very professionally pulling their card. And so <laughs> they 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 you know it, on one end we don't we no longer give these organizations that we entrust with our dollars, whether they're tax dollars or our, our support, we don't we no longer give them the out of we can't find it because mm -hmm. we built it. And then we're also facilitating again that flow of value, right? There's a lot of things out there. Let's let's make this happen. Let's find the ways and democratize the access to the solution. So it's not just, okay, well, I'm going to go to, I don't know, Comcast and say, all right, well, we want to deliver on this, this, and that. Um, or, you know, you have some diversity initiative. Okay, give us much money. We're going to make it happen. It's like, all right, well, we're going to find people uh, that are part of the solution, whether it's a PR team or whether it's a project manager or whatever the case may be who are also from diverse backgrounds because they can actually create a solution that's culturally relevant, right? Because mm -hmm. nothing's worse than people who have who are not pro uh, not proximate to the problem, right? They're far away from the problem. They don't understand it, trying to come up with a solution. So yeah. that is what we're aiming to do. And we do it because we, we genuinely believe in the future of Philadelphia. We believe in the power of black and brown folks. And we know that any sort of future for Philadelphia has to include everyone yeah. at the table. So that's what we're taking the charge to do. Man, that sounds uh, exciting, and also I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear that. that sounds like a daunting task, though. Like, yeah, yeah, but no, I, I, I like I like that challenge that you that you presented. Like, we we're going to do this. Yeah, somebody so, has to do the work, man. So you know, much success to you, good brother, because uh, you know that that's a daunting task, like Corey said. But somebody has to work on it. So you know, um, with that being said, listen, um. Stefan, I have to say, brother, thank you so much for sharing your story. We, we definitely appreciate your time because we know how valuable time is. 
So we want to say thank you. Also to say continue success with all your future endeavors. Um, and, you know, we're here as a resource for you as well. Anything you need community based or, you know, um, all the spaces that we're in, we are here for you because you're doing great work. And, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, man. Appreciate you guys. Thank you guys for, for giving me the platform to be able to, to, to share that story. Um, and, and just wanted to correct one thing that Corey said, uh, only because I think that this is a real, a really important thing for us to think about, like overall, not just, not, you know, not just us is the connect and organizations like us. We aren't like, I'm not solving a problem. Yes. Right. I am opening an arena for all the people who solve the little problems to be equipped to help chip down on this big problem. Okay, you're right. creating a platform to bring them all together. Right, so think of it much like how I said uh, value flows through me, the connect is sort of the the, uh, the, the the epitome of that, right? We're literally the connect, so we're connecting you to a new opportunity, we're connecting them to access to funding or whatever the case may be, we're connecting organizations to the, the talent that will actually drive them to the next level. So. We don't, you know, we ideate the ways to make that happen, but in terms of like being the solution, no, nah, the solution already exists, and we're going to make that, we're going to bring that all into that arena and make that happen. So, um, understood. understood. Yeah. Listen, that's 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 great stuff right there, man. Corey, yeah, you got here, brother? No, just that you know, like when I, again, and I say this a lot on this podcast, I'm proud of the work that our people do. You know what I mean? Like the work that our people do. To, to put, you know, put each other on, you know, because we, we, you know, we do a lot of things where it's multicultural and we do a lot of things that are whatever, mm-hmm. like on this show that has been for black people and about black people. I'm very proud of the work that we do um, with the people that have come on to this show. So you are no different in that way, but you, you know, you're different in a lot of different ways, but in that way, you're no different than every other guest that we've had come on here that's doing the work. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Yeah. Appreciate you, my brother. Thank you. Absolutely, guys. man. And for our audience out there, um, I will put all of uh, Stefan's um, social media and links and everything within the description or the show yes. notes. Um, make sure that you give him a follow and check out the work that he's got going on. Um, you know, all we want to do is say thank you. Thank you for all the support because we continue to get more and more supporters. And we want to say we appreciate that. Um, Stefan, again, good brother. Blessings to you and uh, much success to you in the future. And for our audience, as we always say, it's not about how much money you make. It's about how much you keep. Game elevates. We'll see you guys on our next episode. Peace. <laughs>